0: The end of John chapter 20. John writes, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He says this just after telling Thomas that they are blessed who have not seen and yet believed, having met with them multiple times, having met with uh, the ladies who are kind enough to come to him, and having met with many others. It says, though, but these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Beloved, I don't think that I'm making a stretch to say that every man who has come up before you at this pulpit has endeavored with the same desire to share the things that Jesus has done that you might have life through his name, that you might believe. However, we do that knowing full well that the story does not rest on our shoulders. And that's a great comfort. That's a great comfort for a number of reasons. But the first and foremost is because All of us have already failed in our own lives. How can we take in hand to set apart and to think that we have some kind of capability, some kind of goodness to save another? Indeed, we are all woefully and hopelessly lost. But these things are a great mystery. Man rising from the grave, man rising from the grave and proclaiming (coughs) he would do it himself, that he would take himself up again years before and in the intervening years many times, As Elder Chuck said this morning, he did it so often that the enemies of Jesus said, we have to post a guard there because he is likely to try to do something, have his disciples do something, because he said he's going to rise up on the third day. But his disciples, they were mourning and they were scared. Because these things are a mystery. There's many mysteries in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are so many so deep that even the strongest swimmers will find themselves eventually drowned. But the Bible is also so shallow at many points that even the littlest ones can understand. That's why Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep and to feed his lambs. Same reason why we here uh, keep our children with us, because we know that the way that God teaches is that it affects all of us, suiting to our station. And yet there was a time when a master of Israel took time to visit Jesus in the night. Now that burial that happened, it was done by uh, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, however, was not always so helpful. He was not always ready, willing, and able to donate huge sums, even though, and to do do things publicly that would have uh, benefited Jesus and would have properly uh, buried him, even though um, the Jews were watching and the Jews had just had him killed. Nicodemus, at one point, was not quite so bold. There was a time when he visited Jesus, not in the day. He didn't speak of him in the day, but he visited him by night. From that time and from this visit... There are many things we should deduce, but one of the most, if not probably the most, shared verse in all of Scripture, and because Scripture is so rampant, it might be the most quoted single sentence in the world, is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now that everlasting life was a promise. It was something that Jesus would later talk about with the woman at the well, just, just not too long after this, at least in the Gospel of John. But that everlasting life had a source. And if you want to believe that someone is going to give you something as powerful as everlasting life, I think it's fitting that you should hope to see some proof, some example of this, some evidence of their power. But, thankfully, we don't rely on that. But, Jesus, and the reason we are in some ways gathered here today, the thing we celebrate is that Jesus himself proved it. And he didn't just prove it with his own body, he proved it with that of Lazarus and others, and probably many more that weren't, saved that weren't recorded that jesus himself showed that he had power over the grave but before that before we can even understand that he did it because all the evidence points to a risen jesus all the evidence that we have of that time shows it just logically speaking but why do men not believe well the reason is because it is impossible it is impossible i like to consider the things that were said that night but these things again are a great mystery and Nicodemus put it succinctly when he said, how can these things be? How can these things be? Well, it started with Nicodemus going to him. It says that he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night, and he asked him certain questions. He said, you, we know that you are a man of God. For, or, sorry, not a question, it makes a statement. You are a man of God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, I say unto thee, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm not going to dwell on this point or this section. I'm going to go on to the part after his question, but I'd like you to bear in mind what is said here and why Nicodemus is dumbfounded. How he doesn't understand these things can be. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And see, this is before, not after the passage that says those who believe will have everlasting life. But not just that, we don't want to forget the first part of that passage. It talks about God's love for the world. And if I can leave you anything today, it would be this, that God, while he works his own will, while he does it with majesty, with wisdom beyond all of our comprehension, with all of our combined comprehension, does it because, and in a way that suits his love for the world, that he loves us dearly. And though he works mysteries and he does his things that are beyond our comprehension, we must remember that is the underlying trait, That is the thing that when we hide from him and when we uh, fear him and we don't do our deeds in the light, as even this passage will go on to say, but again, I won't get there, so if you read later, you might consider that, that as we hide from him, it's because we don't understand that everything he has done has been from a point of love. That is to say, everything that has been a mercy, everything that's been a blessing for us. And so as we look at these mysteries, if you understand these things, I beg of you to remember his love for us. Says Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there's many things he says here. Again, I'm not going to dwell on these things, but I want you to consider this distinction that Jesus gives, that that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. There are things that are born of one, there are things that are born of the other, that there is a separation between the things that you can have. He says, Marvel not that I sense that ye, ye must be born again. And here he shows the power by which these things are done. He says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and now hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So this birth that happens happens by an autonomous power that is best revealed by Jesus similar to the wind. And we have all manner of means and, and ways that we can study the wind and yet still we find that we, it's a mystery to us. What's going to happen? You know that the forecast changes very quickly when you pay attention to it. Well, this same sovereign um, power, this same unseeable force is an example of the way that God causes new birth causes new birth right this isn't a uh, something that you choose and then god comes to you it's so sovereign that you can't even see when it's coming or where it came from right it's completely out of our power but remember that these mysteries are done from a point of love for his people that is to say, all those who are eventually born of the Spirit. And there's much places in the Old Testament where Nicodemus should have known that this would come. Places in Ezekiel and others, again, that I won't get into at this time, just for lack of time. But we should bear in mind that Jesus says to him in reply to his, how can these things be? He says, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? And we should learn from that is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are from one God. They are as intertwined and bound as your own body, much more so, in fact, because the Bible cannot be broken. And so you don't need the New Testament to see the gospel of God. You don't need the Old Testament to see the judgment of God. God is God, and it's revealed in all places, and all times, throughout his word, the same. And so when he promises mercy again and again, and when he saves his people Israel because of his own desire, his own preference, when he makes a deal with Abraham for what seems like no reason at all, We should be glad that God has done it. And we should be uh, crying out in praise that he would even interact with men, men who spurned him, not just from the start, from the heart, and from all of us. And so Jesus goes on to say, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. These are some hard words, and it's something you should bear in mind that Nicodemus will be a believer he appears to be here a newborn believer but eventually he will speak in defense of jesus in the presence of the pharisees he will eventually be there at not just his death but also for a part of his burial and he will take no small part in that action so we want to have some tenderness for nicodemus as jesus obviously shows nicodemus some tenderness even in the way he speaks but he shows he says here that these things that they do that they are spoken that they are known the things that we know about God are not abstract ideas that we have come to agree with, generally speaking, after a long night of interesting philosophical conversation with our friends. These are things that we do know. We have witness testimonies, countless of them. You have the witness testimonies of the different writers of the gospel, then you have the witnesses that happen in your friends, then you have the evidence of the historical events that happened, but then you have that chief witness, the Spirit of God, which comes from a source that we cannot find that speaks in our hearts, and that makes these things manifest to us, that opens our eyes. Jesus says, If I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? How shall ye believe of if I tell you of heavenly things? Now this is a gentle rebuke, because Nicodemus, remember, has come by night. He has, till this point, not accepted and admitted belief in Jesus. He has not recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet he was the one who was given the oracles of God. And so, if anyone is going to get a hard accusation from God when he comes on earth, it would have been the rulers of the Jews, those who were given as I said, the oracles of God. Those who were given to feed the flock. Those whose duty it was to watch and know that the messiah was coming and to be mindful of the symbols and also know that he came from god and to look for any evidence any signs of someone that came from god but nicodemus admits that he saw that he said that no man can do these things unless they came from god except god be with him no man can do these things and yet they don't believe they're resisting jesus's teaching of course the question is why is that and the reason is because with man it is impossible With man, it is impossible. This man, who had been taught from a young age everything there was to know at the time about God and his work in the earth, of God's mercy, of his methods and his means, still was completely blind to the facts of the case. And here he is, a babe. And Jesus here seems to give him no more opportunity to even raise up questions. He says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. There is a great desire in all of us to seek out and to lay hold on the heavenly and to be the one to deliver it to the people we know, especially in great teachers like Nicodemus. There is a desire to have been the one who got word directly from God. As a matter of fact, it's a thing that Jesus talked about, that there would be those who would come in his name. There would be those who said they got a message from God. This has been the case from all of recorded history, and I imagine that we will not stop hearing tomorrow, unless the Lord comes, that we will not stop hearing about people who got some direct vision from heaven. But that likely contradicts the word of God. For if God thought that we needed direct visions from heaven, we would all have them regularly. But he is elected to do what he does in a very soft and a gentle way. And so Jesus says that no man has descended to heaven but he that came down from heaven which is to say no man has been there no one has seen what i have seen again when jesus says i we speak that we do know he is speaking clearly and with all knowledge and with all understanding that he has been in heaven and no one else has a view that he has if you imagine what it's like the first time you've been up in a plane and you've seen your hometown and the surrounding area from above it changes your whole worldview. Now we have maps and we have uh, Google Maps that give us the opportunity to kind of look at that freely from the ground. Gives us a lot more mobility. But before you saw that, the world was a different place the first time you saw it from a proper vantage point. Well, Jesus has always seen the world from a proper vantage point, and all men have never seen the world from a proper vantage point but we have always desired it that's why they built the tower of babel beloved that they desired to be like god they desired to have his knowledge his vantage point it's why eve was said to have taken the fruit it's why adam took the fruit because it said that they saw it to be a fruit to make one wise and jesus is here saying that no man has succeeded at this no man has seen the world from heaven no man has brought down heavenly truths but he does here and now. Even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And it's interesting how he says, is in heaven. How he says that he is in heaven. That the Son of Man, which is Jesus, is so perfectly interwoven with the Father, that despite having come down and being separated by a great distance, and a, a, a number of other mysteries that I would um, not want to venture into at this time, but To be separated by such great things that he still was in perfect concert with the Father is an amazing thing, but it also should give us hope and desire because we don't just have hope of communion with God in heaven. We have an example that Jesus himself walked with God so succinctly that it was as though he was in heaven. Not as though, but he was in heaven. That we have that same promise, that same relationship held out to us when Jesus said, I and him, and you and me, and vice versa. That we have that same communion available to us through the Spirit that came. But I digress. It says, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And this, beloved, is the reason that we have marked this day as special. If you're not familiar with the story, I'd like to Read it now in Numbers 21. We'll start at the beginning for context. It says, And when King Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel, and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then will I utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened. The voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they were utterly destroyed and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah, which means destruction, utter destruction. Don't use that as a name. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt, to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now, before we get into what happens next, we should recognize that these things happened unto them for our sakes. That these things happened unto the Israelites, and preserve these stories in living bodies. These are not abstract parables that were given. These are real events that happened to real people to show us that we are. Sadly, much like them. That we can gain a great many benefits from God. We can have answers to prayer directly. But then, shortly thereafter, a little bit of trouble. And we might find ourselves wondering if God actually cares for us. Is this the place I'm supposed to be in life? Am I supposed to be serving these people in this way? Should I be faithful? If God's going to be this way, what reason do I have to be faithful? Remember, they had just prayed to God, and God delivered them, their enemies, entirely. Not partially, completely. Completely. And then in their confession, as they spoke out against God, they said, there's no water, no bread. And our soul loatheth this light bread. I'm sure you heard the contradiction, right? There's no bread, but they hate the bread they have. But the bread they have was a constant reminder of God's goodness. That the bread that came from heaven, the manna that came from heaven, didn't just appear at a certain time and place for a sustained period. It did that. But it did it in its most strange way. It would show up for five days... Then the sixth day, there would be double portion on the ground. Then the seventh day, there would be none, directly obeying the a law of God. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a weather phenomenon that provided food on the ground and landing on different things that you could collect enough for your whole family that only happened for certain days of the week and then double down on one day before the day you're not supposed to do any work and then didn't provide any on that last day. This was a weekly reminder that God was ever-present and continuing to provide for them. And that if they were in that place of discouragement, of difficulty, it was on purpose and it was for their best good. Because God loved them. God had taken them out of Egypt. There were those among them who would later witness and give great testimony. But God showed his ever-present patience with them and his ever-present justice and his gifts that he always gives. And yet they still were discouraged. It's why those of you who have the superpower of encouragement, and I don't mean that facetiously, it truly is a great ability, you should not ever hesitate to use it. Because discouragement can undo everything. Discouragement can lead to every type of sin, every type of error, every type of mistake, even clapping back against the very God that was providing food for them every day and had just delivered them from an enemy, had just delivered them from an enemy, wholly and entirely. Now, if this is the case for them, how much more so us, who live in comfort, who have never been walking in the desert with God, who have not walked anywhere near this degree of faith where every day you had to trust him to provide every single meal presently? Not from a providing the food or the money you need from your job. We're talking about he actually provided the food every single day. When they ran low on water, he had to provide it or they didn't get it. They were walking in faith in a way that all of us might hope to, might desire to. And yet still, they were discouraged what happened next is the shadowing. It says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And the Lord, and I'm sorry, and Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass... That everyone that is bitten, when look at the it, shall live. Now, if anyone doesn't think that God is original, they don't read much of the Bible. He just does things in his own way all the time. And at the moment, it doesn't seem to mean much, right? At the moment, it seems to be strange. But when you have our historical perspective and you get to look at all things put together in their proper place in order, you understand that God didn't just give a blessing to the Israelites this day. He gave it to all of us, even to this very day. that you can take a look at this, and you can see more of God's character, God's person, and the work that Jesus did on the cross, and why it was so necessary. He had him take a fiery serpent and put it on a pole. Well, this is very interesting from a number of points, but we should go on before we go back. It says, Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, that when he beheld the serpent... Of brass, he lived now why would it be that he would take a serpent of brass and put it on a pole well there's a lot of different teachings here but it's interesting that he would use the same symbol as those things that were on the ground it's also interesting that he would use brass you don't think of brass as being some kind of great success do you even at this time we know that brass is something that you can fairly easily get it's not unattainable it's not that special but it glows with a brightness under the sun. Remember how he commanded them to use a fiery serpent. There's a few things we can learn about Jesus as we consider this. First, is that Jesus did not come looking like and being the greatest things. He did not show up like you might see in some superhero movie now, where they come down in flying colors and land in some beautiful um, explosion of things and standing in front of something they just blew up and showing their greatness. Jesus could have done all that and much more. And that was way before CGI, right? Way before controlled explosions. This was a time when Jesus could have showed up in any glorious way that he desired and never did. He could have just shown as a, come, showed up as a great leader of men. He didn't. He could have come as one who was comely. But it specifically says that he was not comely. He didn't come as looking like the best. He came as just one of us. Just an average fellow who seemed to be insignificant and nothing and indeed the historians sometimes do wonder at this insignificant random carpenter in the middle of nowhere in the backwoods section of the roman empire how he changed the world but god takes pleasure in using little things to upend the great things of the world i don't know why he does but i do like it that He does it's a wonderful thing until of course my little children beat me on some sport then i i get a little mad about it but It is a wonderful thing, the way that God works, that he should have his son come in such a way. And we can see that. He would use a lesser metal, and yet it was exactly the right metal because brass, when held up in the light, shines quite brightly in the sunshine. And so this could have been seen a great distance across the camps. He did, through this, allow for there to be a grace and a mercy that this single thing could have been seen a great distance across the whole camp of Israel so that if any looked upon him, or on, I should say, the serpent, they would have been healed what an amazing thing what a strange thing that he would still give something that they would have to do he was going to give them salvation why would he have them even have to look up it doesn't seem to make sense right? and yet he would draw us in the same way to see his son he would draw us in the same way that he drew the very poison out of their veins but we should also take care for as much as Jesus was the single example and serpent upon that pole that there are many other serpents like the ones on the ground who would deliver a great many different messages, ones which would be poison to us, which would leave us either discouraged or confused about the nature of God's word and way in the world. But Jesus was that singular serpent, that singular wise one, that singular sacrifice. For indeed, as the serpent was held up on a pole, and as crude as it is, beloved, as, well, some might call it primitive and base, That he was nailed through his body to a tree. That sacrifice was not even the only thing he had to do. That was a part of his obedience, that he should die and bear our sin in that way, to obey the Father. But the most horrible thing he did, of course, was that he bore the weight of all the sin, not just of that camp, but of all of his people that all that poison that was in all those people it's almost as though it was put into that sacrifice it's almost as though it was given unto him and so it is with our sin and with our savior that he should be bearing all these things that we rightly deserve the poison that was in the veins of those people was the right justice of God against their speaking out against him him who had provided them everything and yet it was entirely and perfectly removed and they received life so you hear again Jesus saying how he was going to die. It's interesting to think about the disciples and how they were flabbergasted both by him in his last week talking about him dying, and also the event of his dying. They were broken. They were a sad group of people who were at week's end. We were talking uh, last night about this, and I, I loved. There was a number of great points brought up, but I did love the idea that they could have been perfect soldiers. They could have been perfect believers. But none of them were. They all failed in some way, shape, or form. They were unable to be the kind of believer that sometimes we think we should be. And yet, they were given to us again, these things happened to them for our sakes, to give us an example that we might better understand how that through our weakness his strength is made manifest. His greatness, his goodness, his love for us. But why would he be lifted up? Well, the reason was that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Beloved, we hear these words a lot. We hear them a lot. But in this world of sickness and death, we should never, ever not consider eternal life. Eternal life. Many of us, our bodies are waxing old. Some of us are still getting stronger as years go by. Some of us are in the prime of our youth and we can't imagine what it's like to fade. But all of us have a taste of death if it's not yet in our own body. It's in all of those that we have company with. We all know a bit deep in our souls of the necessary byproduct of sin in the world. The wages of sin is death. And God never leaves a balance unpaid. He is perfectly just in all things. So, if we rightly deserve death in all that we do, should be beyond our greatest fantasies to imagine. Life that should even continue past what we deserve. Unending dollars have been spent to solve this problem, and they have done nothing nearly to accomplish it. Does anyone yet live to 200 years? No, not even close. Adam lived nearly a thousand. We haven't even scratched the surface of making any attempt at having our lives continue. But here, God so lightly and gently, says something that bears with it all the weight of existence itself, your existence particularly, eternal life. Let's not quickly go by the idea of eternal life. But he does give a whosoever, whosoever. Now I read past it very quickly, I didn't really stay on it, but now is maybe a good time to consider what Jesus had said before. Because he said that you can't even see the kingdom of God. How can you believe in what you cannot see? You certainly can't enter into, he said, unless you are born again. Unless a man is born again. And these things happen in a way that is out of our control. He said, don't, don't marvel about this. He said that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Which is to say, everything you have ever known before God worked in your life, for those of you whom He already has, was completely and utterly insufficient to have anything other than a logical concept of what God has done. But if the Spirit has worked in your heart, or if the Spirit will soon work in your heart and in your life, and replace that heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh and wash the inward man, then, beloved, you don't just have an idea and a hope in the abstract, in the logical side of yourself about possibly having something good after death. You have a true and a sure, understood promise and hope of eternal life that does not end. See, some might think that this means that if you believe, you have a right to. But it's the opposite. That you believe means you have an eternal promise in God. It is a comfort to you, especially in those dark days. Especially when we lose those we love. Especially when we slip. Especially when the world is very difficult. Especially when temptation abounds. Especially when friends fail us, or we fail friends. But beloved, in all these times, in all these places, if, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, take comfort, because He has arisen. He has been born again of His own power. And by that same power, He promises this, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a gift the gift of the rebirth. But it's interesting what, I keep saying interesting, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes torn away with the deep thoughts of what Jesus does here. It seems so simple, but it is immeasurably deep, immeasurably weighty and heavy to consider. But consider how he says it. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who has the power to raise you from the grave, and he simply says, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I know I've said this many times recently to those of you that I've either been speaking with or I've been preaching to, but I, I can't forget the point that Jesus came and showed how he came and did not break the bruised reed, how he did not quench the smoking flax, how that he could have either appeared in glory or revealed himself in glory or defeated death in a glory that was far more than just two, and I say just, but just two angels in an earthquake, right? Than just the sun stopping, than just the curtain being torn, than just these miracles, he could have done it in such a way that all the world was changed, topographically, geographically, in every way you can imagine, that he changed things forever. And then he could have not just done that, but he could have when he delivered this word, explaining eternal life to us, he could have done it in such a way that nearly crushed our minds and our hearts, that ruined us in many ways. He is delivering words here that no president, no emperor, no person who has ever had power has ever been able to deliver and hear how he gently administers them in the middle of the night in a way that a man can write down and save and in a way that you can hear them even today. And He shows how the, he would spread his word over all the world in such a way that is completely the opposite of what we might expect. We expect him to use force and ability to travel these things. And yet he shows again how he loves to work in a mystery, in the small things, in the still and quiet voice and in those who witness, and those who work, and those who are faithful. I just love the way that God has elected to deliver these things to us, but we must be very careful to remember that he has elected to deliver these things to us. If he did elect to deliver them to us, then we should be able to rightly imagine a world where he didn't. Not for the purpose of, again, abstract philosophy, but for the purpose of thanks. For the purpose of thanks. That he should deliver life to us. And then let us know that we have it. And then change us where we couldn't change ourselves and then continue to sanctify us. And then it says that he went to prepare a place for us that he has had. He has done everything as the saying goes, soup to nuts, end to end, wire to wire. Then he sends us those who would speak to us. He sends us churches to comfort us and to show to us and also to give us work, which is very necessary. How he has done all these things so subtly is to me a mystery. But I pray, beloved, that you would continue to bear them in mind. But then he says why he did it. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and again, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I found it strange that I hadn't even noticed that it was a perfect mirror of the verse before until I began to study this passage. And I had kind of ran over it. That's a a shame to me, and it's shameful, generally speaking, if that's something that's so easy to run over but beloved God so loved the world it's a strange thing to understand what God loves about his creation but if you've ever made anything you might have a better understanding even if you've made it and have to destroy it if you're a potter who has a pot that came out bad after it was uh, cooked in the uh, I forget the term for it but the, uh, the oven kind of thing if it came out wrong was it? Yeah. Kiln, yes, that's it. After it's uh, baked, baked, right? Not cooked, baked in the kiln, and it comes out wrong. Well, the potter has to destroy it. It's necessary and right. That doesn't mean that it didn't love its work throughout the, throughout the process. But that also doesn't mean that it doesn't do what the potter doesn't do. What's right? Just to give a small aside for that. Jesus said that he would give no sign to that generation but the sign of Jonah, which is very small and sometimes you'll lose it like I just did. You know the story. Jonah was called to go and bear witness to the people of Nineveh. He didn't want to. God made him do it anyway. And it was good. But that was what Jonah was afraid of, was the mercy of God. Strange thing, that you should hate people so much that you should be um, more concerned about that than the good things that God has done. Yet God was merciful unto him. But God says at the end, when he explains to Jonah, and again, he, that he would condescend to men of our lowest state and explain himself, this is a mystery to me. He says, at the end though, he says, And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, That cannot discern between their right hand and their left. And also, much cattle. Also, much cattle. That's a strange saying, isn't it? I'm not trying to encourage anyone to be an earth worshiper of any sort. That would be wrong. But God's connection to his creation is deep. And it is real. And so, when God says that he loves this place and he loves his people and he loves even a single one of us so much that he would send his only begotten son I pray that you might consider the creator's heart and the master's heart how deep that love had to be for all of us all of us are as broken pots all of us are as those things which should rightly when they came out of the kiln and when they were proved for what they were been destroyed we might think ourselves above simple matters of little bits of creation but the fact is that that is the truth about ourselves. That we were nothing but clay that tried to clap back against its creator. That tried to tell its creator, what are you doing to me? How dare you make me this way? And yet, he loved. God so loved the world. Now, I know this is a matter often talked about, that he, this word world is talk, is, means specifically his people. And there's plenty of evidences of that. And if you want, we could start with Judas and work our way back from there. But we know that every person wasn't saved, right? We know that the angels never received any kind of redemption. The angels have fell. We know that there are those who are not saved. And so if that's the case, this can't possibly mean the whole world, right? But it does mean all of his people that would be all over the world. And I love how it says, whosoever, whosoever. Beloved, that should be a great comfort to you. You don't need to be a certain height, You don't need to be a certain sex. You don't need to speak a certain language, which most of us would be kicked out by just those things alone. We don't need to be born of Abraham. We don't need to be sons of the promise. Whosoever. Jesus here opens up all of what was once a promise to a single people, to the entire world, as it was promised in the Old Testament. It wouldn't be a surprise to any who were truly a master of Israel, but he opens it up to the whole world, to you and to me, to those who have fallen short of his glory in every tribe, in every kindred, in every tongue. And in so doing, in so doing, beloved, he gave efficacy to our understanding that we might possibly have an effect, an understanding of what he has done for everyone. It gives us an understanding of his love, because at this time... They weren't even supposed to be fraternizing between the Jews and Gentiles in many different ways. Gentiles weren't even allowed into the primary portion of the temple at this time. There was a separation. There was a gulf. But here, Jesus shows that he loved all the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, with whom he was presently in companionship, with whom he was presently in communication. And so when it was necessary that that serpent should be raised in the desert, that that Poison might be removed from the veins of those who were dying under the just reply of God. God elected to have mercy. That was a small picture. That was just one people in one single place that showed forth the greatness and the goodness of God that to this very day, he has continued to show mercy and not for any other reason than that he loves to. We love him, not because we came up with this idea. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. Had we had our way, we were at enmity with God. We had declared war on God. We have this figured out, and he doesn't. But Jesus came that we, who would have war on him, might be able to not just be at peace with him, but that we might also love him, and we might also have eternal life. Thank you for your good attention.